Six Months That Changed the World, the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. Lecture 3, New Forces in International Relations. In previous lectures, I've looked at why the Paris Peace Conference of 1919 was called. It was called to deal with the situation in the world and in Europe in particular left at the end of the First World War to try and make peace, to try and bring order out of what was increasingly looking like chaos. And I've also given you some idea of the main figures there. Woodrow Wilson, the American president, David Lloyd George, the British prime minister, and Georges Clemenceau, the French prime minister. They all brought their own national agendas. They all had their own ideas about what sort of peace they wanted. But what they also had to deal with were the forces of the time. And I'd like to look today a little bit more at two of those forces, which were very difficult to deal with because they burnt very, very high. People had tremendous passion. One of those forces was revolution, in particular the revolution being espoused by the Bolsheviks in Russia. The Bolsheviks, as the Russian communists were known in those days, had a very clear idea of the sort of world that they wanted to build, and it was, in fact, a very compelling vision which compelled and attracted people around the world, not just in Russia. Another force that the peacemakers had to contend with was ethnic nationalism, um, nationalism which drew on the feelings of people that they were somehow united by ties of culture or religion or, or language and that they should have their own nation. The peacemakers had to deal with those forces because these were very much the circumstances of their own world. Let me start with Russian Bolshevism. The Russians had had a series of revolutions in 1917 during which the old order of the czars, the Russian rulers, was overthrown. The first government that took power in February 1917 was a relatively democratic government, but it was going to be supplanted in time in October 1917 by the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks got their ideas from Karl Marx, the great German thinker of the mid-19th century, and with Marx, they believed that history was governed by immutable laws. In other words, you could not only see how history had worked out in the past because the laws governed that, but like scientific laws, you could tell how history would work out in the future. In other words, the laws of history were true for the past, true for the present, and true for the future, just like scientific laws. What Marx and his followers believed, and this is something the Bolsheviks, of course, also believed, was that history was moving inexorably in the direction of a classless communal society, that one day the world would see something which it called communism. In other words, you would have a society in which there were no more individual property owners, there was no more individual property at all. People would live together in a collective sort of way, and they would, in fact, be a different sort of people. Marx and his followers believed very much that human nature could be transformed that human nature was affected by the economic and social and political conditions of particular times. And so if people lived in a capitalist society, which was based on private ownership of property, then they would be individualistic and selfish and generally not cooperate with each other. But in a true communist society, and this was a vision that was held up, it wasn't going to happen right away, but it was going to happen sometime in the future, in a true communist society, there'd be no more private property and no more of this selfish individualism which marked capitalist society. Marx was rather sketchy, in fact, about what communist society would look like, but he left a few hints. 
in communist society, people would work for the good of society because they were, of course, thinking collectively, and they would take from that society only what they needed to survive. Um, his famous phrase was, from each according to his abilities, to each according to his needs. He also talked about how people could do one thing in the morning. They might be a philosopher. In the afternoon, they might go fishing. It was an attractive vision, and it was a vision that was going to attract millions, literally millions of people, both in Russia and around the world. Now, what Marx had argued is that society moved through a series of stages and that you couldn't really jump the stages ahead. That, in other words, you had capitalism with private property. It produced industrialization. It produced a large working class, and then that large working class would move history ahead in the direction of communism. Lenin gave his own twist to these ideas. Lenin, the head of the Russian Bolsheviks, was in a way rather impatient and was not content to think that Russia, which was in many ways a very backwards and agrarian society, was going to have to wait for decades to have capitalism and an industrial revolution before it could begin really to move in the direction of a more communist type of society. And so what Lenin began to argue was that, yes, Marx is absolutely right. History has to go through its stages in, in its proper order. But occasionally in the world, there are moments of such crisis that if you know the way history is going, and of course, if you believe Marx is right and you accept his views, then you do know the way history is going, then you can push it ahead a bit. You can seize control in a crisis and move history ahead of stage. Well, what Lenin believed between 1914 and 1918 was that there was indeed such a crisis, that the old order in Europe was collapsing, in Russia it was visibly collapsing day by day, and that the Bolsheviks, in possession of the truth, as Lenin saw it about the future, should in fact use the opportunity to seize power. Yes, in theory, the people who should be seizing power in the old Russia should have been a capitalist class. But the capitalist class wasn't really there. It hadn't yet developed. And so what the Bolsheviks would do is seize power and do what the capitalist class should have done, industrialize Russia and create a working class. It wasn't pure Marxism, but it seemed to make a lot of sense in the chaos of 1917 as the old Russian regime basically collapsed. The Bolsheviks took the opportunity in the chaos of Russia of 1917 to increase their power. Lenin came back. He'd been in exile in Switzerland. But the German high command, in fact, helped him to get back. Um, rather foolishly, in retrospect, the German high command saw Lenin as a sort of germ or a microbe. And they thought if they sent him back into Russia, he would help to knock Russia out of the war by stirring up more revolution. And so the German high command carefully put him in a train, which they didn't allow to stop as it went through Germany because they didn't want the microbe of Lenin's ideas affecting Germany. And Lenin came back to Russia in April 1917. What he did was quite brilliant. He pushed for Russia to drop out of the war. And since most people in Russia were fed up with the war, this made a great deal of sense. And the Bolsheviks under Lenin's leadership coined a very simple and very effective slogan, peace which most Russians wanted, bread, which a lot of Russians didn't have, land, which the huge peasant class in Russia desperately wanted. And so in October 1917, the Bolsheviks, under Lenin's leadership, seized power in what was basically a coup d'etat. A civil war started almost immediately. The allies, who had been watching with concern, now found themselves getting involved. And this is a very, very important point because it was going to cause all sorts of trouble later on. Allies had sent, the Allies had sent forces to Russia 
even before the Bolsheviks seized power. They'd sent forces in the summer of 1917 because they were hoping to persuade the rather shaky new Russian government to keep Russia in the war. They were also concerned about their own equipment, which they were sending to Russia. They wanted to make sure that it landed and got to the Russian armies, which were still fighting on in the summer of 1917. In addition, there was, by one of these curious twists of history, a Czech legion, which had got itself caught on the Trans-Siberian Railway. A number of Czechs who were fighting for Austria-Hungary had surrendered en masse to Russia. They didn't want to fight for Austria-Hungary anymore. And they had been put into prison camp, but they had got themselves out and had begun to move across the Trans-Siberian Railway to get to the port of Vladivostok and, and so ship out. And they fell into conflict partway across the railway and found themselves in possession of a good deal of the Trans-Siberian Railway. And so the Allies, initially who had sent troops to Russia to try and help Russia stay in the war and to protect this Czech legion, found themselves once the Bolsheviks had seized power in October 1917, getting embroiled in what became a very nasty civil war. Allied intervention in Russia, which really started to keep Russia in the war, ended up becoming Allied intervention on the side of the non-Bolshevik Russians, the so-called White Russians, against the Red Russians, the Bolsheviks. In fact, Allied intervention never made that much difference in the long run to the fate of the Civil War. The Bolsheviks won because essentially they controlled the major part of Russia in the center. They controlled a lot of the population and industry. Where it was important, where Allied intervention was important, is that it left a lasting impression among the Bolsheviks themselves and the successes when they became the communists that the West, the capitalist West, would do anything to kill the communist experiment in Russia. So it was to have a very important long-term impact on relations between the new uh, Russia, which became the Soviet Union, and the West. What did the Bolsheviks want to do once they had taken power? What they wanted to do, and this had been their slogan, of course, was get Russia out of the war. And so almost immediately, they sent peace feelers to the German high command, who, of course, were delighted. This is exactly what they had hoped for when they'd sent Lenin back in his famous train to Russia. And so negotiations started at a small town called Brest-Litovsk between the new Bolsheviks and the Germans. I mean, it must have been a very funny sight indeed. The German high command, Prussian army officers, many of them dressed in full uniform, and this, these new radical Bolsheviks. At any rate, the negotiations were completed by March 1918, and a treaty was signed at Brest-Litovsk, which, under which Russia dropped out of the war. It was important both because it freed up German troops now to go over to the Western Front. It gave Germany and Austria-Hungary access to all sorts of resources that the Bolsheviks had. It was also going to be important in shaping Allied attitudes towards Germany when peace finally came, because the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which Germany basically dictated to the Bolsheviks, and the Bolshevik government of Russia was in no position to be choosy. It had to take what it could get. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was a very, very harsh treaty, Germany demanded and got a good deal of gold out of Russia. It demanded extensive Russian territory and extensive Russian resources. And the Allies were horrified by it. It showed to them everything they had always feared about German war aims. And when it came to making peace in Paris, many of the Allies remembered Brest-Litovsk. They were less inclined to be kind to Germany because they said when Germany was in the winning position, look what it did to Russia. Well, the Bolsheviks had got themselves successfully out of the war, but of course they were also fighting a civil war. What they hoped was that revolution was going to break out elsewhere in the world and that this would ultimately save them. 
the Bolsheviks did not really have a foreign policy in 1917. What they had was an ideological belief. Lenin and Leon Trotsky, the Bolshevik who now became responsible for Russia's foreign relations, expected that world revolution was about to follow around the world. And so they didn't really see any need for a foreign policy. Why would you bother to negotiate with governments such as the government of Britain or the government of France, which are going to be swept aside in a worldwide revolution? Trotsky, in fact, went into the old foreign ministry, which the Tsars had had, opened the secret files, which uh, turned up some very interesting stuff indeed. He found all sorts of secret agreements that the Allies had made about carving up parts of the world, published those secret agreements, much to the embarrassment of the Allies, and then basically expected he'd shut up shop. He said there's no need for a foreign ministry anymore because we're going to have a worldwide revolution and we're going to have a worldwide uh, communist-dominated world. In 1919... Trotsky and Lenin, in fact, issued a call for delegates from left-wing parties and left-wing unions from around the world to come to Moscow to form a new communist international, which would act as a sort of executive for world revolution. This was to be known as the Comintern. And they published and broadcast appeals to peoples all over the world, workers, the oppressed of various sorts, to rise up and overthrow their own governments. This, not surprisingly, sent various uh, nervous tremors through the rulers of Europe and the rulers of, of, of the United States and, and countries such as Canada, who saw themselves being swept aside by revolutionary upsurges from below. This was a fear that, that had existed in Europe before the war, and, and it wasn't entirely a new fear. But in 1918 and 1919, the two years after the Bolshevik seizure of power in Russia, it looked as though revolution was finally going to come. There were outbreaks all over Europe. In Germany, as Germany was finally defeated and, and sued for an armistice, councils of workers and soldiers disobeyed their, their bosses and disobeyed their officers and seized power. And in fact, very consciously modeling themselves on the Bolsheviks, they set up what they called Soviets, the uh, term that the Bolsheviks used for councils. In Austria, you had revolutionary upsurges. During the peace conference, there was briefly a communist government in Bavaria. In April 1919, a communist took power in Hungary, and that government was going to survive until the beginning of August 1919. And so there were very good grounds for fearing that Europe was going to have a series of revolutions which really sweep aside the old world. In France... There were radical demonstrations and strikes, some, some turning very violent. I mean, on May Day, the 1st of May, 1919, as the peace conference was in full stride, the whole city basically came to a stop because of demonstrations and strikes, and there were violent clashes between the police and some of the radicals, and, and people were killed. In North America, the international workers of the world, known as the Wobblies, threatened to bring anarchy into American labor relations. In Winnipeg, a city in the Canadian prairies, there was a general strike, which many people saw as the first signs of revolution in North America. And so what you get in Paris in 1919 as they try and make peace is the peacemakers looking very nervously over their shoulders, not just at Russia and what's going on there, although they're very nervous about that, but also looking very nervously over their shoulders at their own peoples. In fact, some historians... Arno Mayer among them, have argued that the peace settlements in Paris really were shaped by this fear of revolution, shaped by a need to contain revolution. I'm not sure that I'd agree entirely with that. I think the peacemakers were certainly aware of the, the dangers of revolution, I and mean, that was something that they worried about. 
But they also had many other things to worry about. And on many occasions, I think you got people saying, look, yes, they're revolutionary upheavals, but does it really amount to a full-scale revolution? Lloyd George said, David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, said to someone one day, you know, yes, there are all these upsurges and upheavals and violent strikes, but he said the old Europe is pretty strong. He said, I'm not really that worried. You also got people using the prospect of revolution rather cynically. A number of the petitioners who came to Paris, and remember lots of people are coming to Paris to this center of world power to ask for various things from countries to votes for women, some of the petitioners also used the threat of revolution. The Romanians, for example, came to Paris and said, you know, we must have territory we want, in fact, about half of Hungary. If we don't get it, we will probably have a revolution, and that will bring revolution further into the heart of Europe. You also had a wonderful example of a Canadian diplomat in Paris, Canada's legal advisor, who found it rather helpful in personal terms. Um, he was having really rather a good time in Paris, and he was writing letters back to his wife in Ottawa, which was by no means to be compared with Paris, and he was describing going to the theater, and he would go out in the evenings, and he would describe French women, and he wrote to his wife in Ottawa, and he said, you know, they're really quite attractive. And we discuss, he said, in the Canadian delegation whether French women have better ankles than Canadian women, and we think that, yes, they probably do. Well, after a number of letters like this, his wife wrote to him and said, I'm coming to join you. And he then wrote her the most wonderful letter, saying, yes, of course, you must come. I've missed you enormously. When you come, he said, I'd put a few tins of food in your luggage and some stout boots, because there is probably going to be a revolution in Paris and there won't be any food, and you're probably going to have to walk back to the English Channel and try and get a boat back to England if you can get there. So, well, she didn't come. So revolution was something that people were certainly very conscious of, but how much they really were frightened of it is, is, is very much, I think, another matter. That still left the question of what to do about Russia. And this was a tricky one. The Allies were there on Russian soil, increasingly involved in the Russian Civil War, should they be there at all? And there was a lot of discussion about that. There were hardliners such as Winston Churchill and Marshal Ferdinand Foch, who was the supreme Allied commander-in-chief and also the leading French general. Both Foch and Churchill argued that more Allied troops should go to Russia, they should intervene, they should strangle the Bolsheviks in their graves, that they were a menace to Western civilization. Churchill said, among other things, that the Bolsheviks were blood-stained, hairy baboons. I mean, he, he couldn't stand them. And Foch was an interventionist as well. Lloyd George took the point of view that we can't intervene, that we'll have to deal whichever, with whichever government emerges in Russia, and if it's the Bolsheviks, we'll have to deal with them. Woodrow Wilson took a similar view. He said, in fact, in his 14 points, one of his 14 points, that the Russians should work out their own fate without outside intervention. In fact, even the interventionists were forced to admit that they didn't have the troops. There was one very telling discussion in the Council of Four. There was a lot of talk about going to Russia. Orlando, the Italian prime minister, was saying, we must go in. We've got to destroy Bolshevism. Lloyd George said, fine, you want to go in. How many troops have you got available? And there was a silence. And Orlando said, well, er, none. And Lloyd George said, neither do I. And he said, the French don't either. We can't do it. And so although there was talk of intervention, in fact, it was very half-hearted. In the course of the peace conference, a number of the Allied troops that were, in fact, in Russia were withdrawn. The Allies simply, again, did not have the ability to project their power into Russia. And I've talked about this lack of power before. And they may have looked powerful on paper, but that power was limited. The other issue with Russia was not the intervention one. That was a very important one. The other issue was whether or not Russia should actually be at the peace conference. And this was a tricky one. 
Russia had been an ally up until 1917. And so you could argue that Russia really should be at the peace conference, was entitled to be there. Clemenceau was completely against this. He said, look, Russia dropped out. It made a peace with Germany, which released all sorts of German troops to come and fight us on the Western Front. They should not be invited. Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson tended to argue that Russians should be there. But then they ran into the problem of which Russians, because a civil war was going on in Russia. And so it wasn't clear who was the government of Russia. And it really wasn't going to be clear until 1921. Should they invite the white Russians, the non-communist Russians? Should they invite the Reds, the Bolsheviks? Um, Should they invite a coalition? Would they come together? One idea that was floated around Paris was to have a conference. Clemenceau said, not in Paris. This was a conference of all Russians, of all political factions. No, said Clemenceau, I can't have it in Paris. And so it was decided they would have it just off Istanbul on an island known as Prinkipo, the prince's island, which was sort of a summer resort off Istanbul. They would invite Bolsheviks. They would invite non-Bolsheviks. They would invite some of the old Tsarist people. They'd invite some of the Democrats. And they'd see if the Russians could hammer out a common position. It was going to happen. Invitations were sent out. And in fact, it simply fell to pieces. The hardline non-communist Russians didn't want to sit down with communists, the Bolsheviks, and the Bolsheviks didn't, in fact, want to come. The Bolsheviks at this point, remember, still thought that a world revolution was about to break out. Why should they bother to talk to capitalists? And so the idea of trying to get some sort of coalition which would represent the Russians in Paris fell down. Various other attempts were made to try and deal with the situation in Russia. A young American called William Bullitt was sent to Russia in the spring of 1919 to talk to the Bolsheviks. And he came back and reported the Bolsheviks seemed rather nice, but again, nothing was decided. And so Allied policy on Russia really remained rather confused. Yes, there were Allied troops on Russian soil, but it was quite clear they were going to be withdrawn very soon. And it wasn't clear which Russians you dealt with. So one of the major forces that the peacemakers in Paris were grappling with was this whole force of revolution, usually summed up in those days, at any rate, as Bolshevism. But there were other forces in the world as well, of course. And the second one that I want to look at in this lecture is the force of ethnic nationalism. That, in the way, is perhaps the more interesting one for us today, because ethnic nationalism is still with us, whereas Bolshevism or communism has has vanished. That was one of the major forces which they had to keep in mind while they were in Paris. The other one was ethnic nationalism. And I've talked a bit about this before, and I'll talk about it again when we come to look at countries such as Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia. But it is important just to say something about it here. Ethnic nationalism is different from other sorts of nationalism in that it assumes that there is a common ethnicity that can be based on language, religion, or culture. And that common ethnicity unites people into what is called a nation. During the 19th century, a number of these ethnic nations were beginning to see themselves as nations, beginning to feel that they were nations, and the next step for almost all of them was to have their own state. And so ethnic nationalism tended, not necessarily, but usually, to lead to the demand for a nation-state. And so in the 19th century, you got nationalism of this ethnic sort producing Greece, Serbia, Romania, Bulgaria. They all freed themselves from the Ottoman Empire. In the second half of the 19th century, it produced Germany and then Italy as Germans and Italians came together to make their own countries. Of course, for Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire and Russia, all of them multinational empires, this was not very good news. Woodrow Wilson has often been either credited or accused, depending on your point of view, with really creating 
more ethnic nationalism after World War I. This really isn't fair. In fact, what he did was give a spur to what already existed. Ethnic nationalism clearly existed and was coming into existence all over Europe and indeed in, in other parts of the world long before the First World War. But what Woodrow Wilson did, and here is a leader of a very powerful country, so what he says is important, what he did is he helped to popularize the idea of national self-determination. What people took from this was that nations defined in, in however you care to define them, and there's all sorts of difficulties about the definition, should have their own states. He may not have meant this. What he seems to have meant, at least on some occasions, was that nations, if they feel themselves to be nations, should be able to have a degree of autonomy so that they have some degree of self-rule. But he doesn't seem to have thought that necessarily meant an independent state. After all, he was a southerner who had lived through, as a little boy, lived through the American Civil War, but who thought it was right that the United States had remained one country. It was a very interesting moment when the Irish nationalists, Irish nationalists tried to come and see him in Paris to talk, to see if they could get his help against the British, and he said no. He said, you live in a democratic country, deal with the British in a democratic way. And so the whole notion of national self-determination was a tricky one. Wilson wasn't clear about it, but a lot of people took it to mean that they should have their own states. And this was a very powerful idea. And the idea spread through Europe. I mean, all over Europe, you got countries naming streets after Wilson and naming squares after Wilson and naming railway stations after Wilson because they felt he had helped them become independent countries. And it spread beyond Europe. Again, the idea of national states was probably spreading beyond Europe anyway. But Wilson's promotion of the idea and his apparent approval of the idea had tremendous reverberations in the Middle East and further afield. When Lawrence of Arabia and the Arabs, who will come to again, but they were fighting against the Ottomans in the desert, when they heard of Woodrow Wilson's notion of national self-determination, they sat around the campfire in the desert and talked about it with great enthusiasm. The Kurds up in the north of what later on, of course, became Iraq, began to do the same sort of thing. And so what they were dealing with in Paris was, of course, expectations. Fears and expectations, fears of revolution, and that was going to influence the peace conference and the peace settlements, I would argue not as much as, as some historians would, would say, but certainly it was there in their minds. What they were also dealing with, another force they were dealing with, was this whole f force of ethnic nationalism. And this was given a tremendous boost by Woodrow Wilson's talk of national self-determination. The problem with national self-determination. And Wilson later on, I think, admitted it. He said to Congress and later on, he said, you know, if I'd known what trouble it would create, I never would have said it because I didn't realize quite how many nations were out there. And the thing about nations is they, there isn't a finite number in the world. New ones keep appearing. We're seeing it even today. Uh, once people begin to feel themselves to be a group, that's when they begin to push for national self-determination. The other problem, and I just want to tie this back into Europe, the other problem in Europe was that the peacemakers were having to draw boundaries. And in many cases, they were being asked to draw those boundaries on the basis of ethnic nationalisms. And the problem in the middle of Europe, it was it couldn't be done without leaving a lot of people on the wrong side of the line. History had left the population of Europe so jumbled up, particularly in the center of Europe, so that you would have a Hungarian village next to a German village, next to a Czech village. I mean, there, there simply were not neat ethnic bundles in the middle of Europe. And so when it came to drawing boundaries, it could not be done. The peacemakers, the big three in particular, set up a whole series of specialist committees 
to deal with borders. And so they set up a committee on Romanian affairs. They set up another committee to look at Polish borders. They set up another committee to look at the borders of the new Czechoslovakia, yet another committee to look at the borders of, the Yugos- of Yugoslavia. And these committees worked very hard. A lot of them were specialists, university professors, diplomats, and they really tried, I think, very hard to draw good boundaries. But they couldn't do it to the satisfaction of all the ethnic nationalisms. To begin with, different ethnic national groups tended to demand the biggest boundaries they could think of rather than the smallest. Secondly, the population mix meant it couldn't be done. And so when the boundaries, the borders, were finally set in the middle of Europe by the peace conference, a third of the population in the center of Europe was living on the wrong side of the borders, and that was going to cause endless trouble between the wars. Well, a number of these issues, how to deal with revolutionary Russia, how to deal with ethnic nationalisms, how to deal with all these demands that were coming in day by day to the peace conference, came up in the first few weeks that the peace conference opened. And while it grappled with these, grappled with Russia, grappled with with, with revolution, grappled with some of the demands coming before it for a Yugoslavia or a Poland or a Czechoslovakia, they still had to deal with the real reason, the main reason why they had come there, and that was drawing up the peace terms, drawing up the terms with Germany. They'd barely made a, a dent in that. And they had, at least Woodrow Wilson had, a great concern. He was worried that all these other issues, these issues of borders, new countries, peace terms, would somehow sideline his dream, the reason he had come to Paris, the reason he felt the United States had entered the war. And so Woodrow Wilson, as we will see in the next lecture, was going to insist that the first matter of business at the top of the agenda of the Paris Peace Conference, as it started its serious work in January and February 1919, should be the League of Nations. After listening to Lecture 3, a student posed this question to Professor McMillan. Nationalism seems like it was a fairly disruptive force. Do you think it's always a bad thing? Let's listen to the professor's response. I think we need to distinguish between two different types of nationalism. There is the nationalism, which I would call civic nationalism, or people sometimes call patriotism, where people who share values live in a country, feel an attachment to that country, They don't necessarily speak the same language or share the same religion. That's not the important thing. The important thing is is being a citizen of that country and wanting to support it. The nationalism which was stimulated by the French Revolution was that sort of nationalism. I mean, one of the first things the French Revolution did was to say that Jews, for example, could be French citizens as well. And so they didn't have a definition of what it was to be French. Anyone who lived in France, supported the revolution, was part of the French nation. The other kind of nationalism, and it's the one that really is the one, I think, which has caused so much disruption and and what they were dealing with at the Paris Peace Conference, is ethnic nationalism. And that comes about when you begin to get a group of people seeing themselves as linked in certain ways. And it usually involves language. It often involves religion. It can involve blood, as it did with, with Hitler and the Nazis when they talked about the Aryan nation. What that sort of ethnic nationalism does is say, we're part of a group and you're not. It draws lines and it it excludes people. And so even people who want to be part of the ethnicity, if they don't have the right set of characteristics, can't be. And that's where I think ethnic nationalism is, is potentially so dangerous. It comes about, or it came about in the 19th century, when people began to argue that language was the mark of a people, um, that people who spoke the same language were in somehow, were in some sense linked. 
It also came about, quite frankly, because of people like me. Historians began to write the histories of these ethnic groups. And of course, what they tended to do was pick out the most glorious bits or the bits when the ethnic groups had been most victimized. And that helped to create a sense of identity. Ethnic nationalism inspires great loyalty and has inspired um, tremendous, uh, tremendous deeds and feats. But it can be very, very dangerous because it seems to me at the heart of ethnic nationalism is this saying, you're in and you're out. And when you start doing that, it means that those who aren't part of your ethnicity, even if they live on the same soil, even if they live in the same village, don't belong there any longer. And that was going to be one of the curses of Europe in the 20th century. This ends Lecture 3.